Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage today comes from Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Listen for what God is saying to you. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. May God add a blessing to the hearing and understanding of this scripture. Good morning, Urban Village Church. Hyde Park Woodlawn. It's been a couple of weeks since we have gathered in this space as a community to worship, and and this morning was um, particularly unique, just not because we were uh, moving through the aches and pains of re-remembering some of the things that um, that we do when we set up, but uh, as it turns out, we were on our own this morning um, a little unexpectedly, um, and fortunately, God gave me all the things and all the people I needed to help um, this morning set up to be smooth, um, including people who had good, cheerful hearts and um, good spirits. So I'm grateful for everyone who um, who helps make worship happen. It's said that worship is the work of the people, and I thank you for coming and um, being part of that work here. Um, why don't we open, uh, begin with a word of prayer. God, we thank you for the gift of holiday times that allow us to step back and um, move into a a different realm of life uh, where we can reconnect in maybe more intentional ways or um, get a little more sleep or um, just kind of be quiet a little bit more than we normally are. And we thank you for the opportunity to come back together and um, be community again, to reconnect and in ways that... uh, are a little bit more intentional than when we were able to, when our schedules were over full. Help us to hang on to that time of, um, of quietness and help us to find opportunities to live into that, um, this morning included. So we invite your spirit to be present in the space of our hearts and minds. Illumine our uh, imaginations for what it is that you would have us do and be in this world, both as individuals as well as a community. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So last month, uh, I found myself making some Christmas cookies um, to bring to a cookie exchange at the Hyde Park Neighborhood Club, which is a place that my daughter, Sela, spends a lot of time hanging out. And it was one of those things that was important for me to do as a mom. Um, neither of my parents ever showed up in, with cupcakes to my classroom. Um, and I 
I just thought, you know, I, this, this is a very meaningful thing, like way for me to be a mom, right? Um, and maybe other people have their other things, but that was mine. So I made these sugar cookies, and I should note that um, cooking and baking are actually kind of stressful for me. Um, but I did it, and I made these sugar cookies, and as I pulled them out of the oven, I dropped the pan. Pro tip, dish towels don't make a very good substitute for oven mitts. Um, they were still tasty, and the rest of the cookies were just fine. And as it turned out, nearly half of the cookies um, that people brought for the exchange were store-bought, which I have to admit was a little bit disappointing to me. Um, I showed up with my janky little Christmas cookies, and other people dialed it in. So um, no judgment, but a little bit of judgment. Um, <laughs> I was hoping for some homemade cookies. Um, so anyway, you know sometimes you have this picture um, in your mind of how things will be right? No matter how modest it might be. Um, and then it just doesn't turn out the way that you hope it will. I recently um, read a blog post by this guy named Mike Thayer. And based on his little tagline, he's a writer, a hunter, a gamer, an engineer, a father, an ex-jock, an ex-jock, and a nerd. And I've never read this blog before, but a Mormon friend of mine posted the link and the title caught my eye. Utah, lifestyle porn capital of the world. And while his post is specifically toward critiquing a culture of perfection among those who share his Mormon faith, there's plenty of for non-Mormons to think about. Um, because when he talks about this idea of lifestyle porn, what he's mainly describing is this ideal life, right? Where all of your Pinterest crafts come out as expected, your home is always clean, your body is always in shape, your clothes are always on point, and while we're at it, you always return your library books on time, your $5 donation really does make a world of difference for hunger, and that online petition you signed brought down the patriarchy, right? It's a world and a lifestyle that says there's no way I can't win and I never experience pain or regret or apathy, and it's a lie. And it makes you feel like a failure even before you've begun when you start hoping for that. But you can't stop looking and hoping and fantasizing about that life, right? Lifestyle porn sets this unhealthy, unnecessary, and unrealistic expectation of who you should be, what your life should look like, and by when you should have achieved whatever goals you wrote down in your journal when you were 14 years old. It's natural to want to take some time at the beginning of the year to reflect on where you are and where you'd like to be. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But the problem is, well, lifestyle porn. We're beginning our new series with this question, what is the good life really? And what is it for, really? And how do we, as individuals, as a community, how do we intersect with all of that? When we think of the good life, the images that come to mind are often some version of lifestyle porn, whether that lifestyle looks like, uh, uh, involves a McMansion, or perfect edges and a mani-pedi to match, or three sets of degrees behind your name and a best-selling book, or a partner and a chocolate with a chocolate lab, right? But the problem is that porn isn't really real, right? So no matter how hard you stretch toward it or engage with it, you're left feeling empty and unfulfilled. Because it isn't about the edges or the degrees or the chocolate lab exactly. It's something else, an itch that can't be scratched. Is this the good life? Something that leaves us perpetually unsatisfied? Is that the good life? Is this what God created us for? Marketers will readily tell you that their job is to make you feel a sense of need for something that they are selling. But is the good life something that can be bought? 
What if the good life wasn't something that could be packaged, taglined, and sold so neatly? What if instead, uh, being made for us, the good life is something that we are made for? What if the good life was something more like a series of occasions and calls that we have a choice to rise to? Well, in our passage for today, this is exactly what we find. You might be somewhat familiar with it. It's the start of what people often call the Sermon on the Mount, which begins with a series of statements that seem totally upside down, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit and those who mourn. Blessed are the meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, and those that make peace. Blessed are those who endure abuse and are rejected. That doesn't sound very blessed at all, right? Jesus, I don't think you know what this word really means. But, of course, he knows exactly what he's saying um, because he, what he's doing isn't just clickbaiting you into sticking around. The author of Matthew is, is doing that, actually. But what's more important <laughs> is that Jesus is trying to paint a picture of what it means to live the good life on God's terms. That it's not a life of expert-level Pinteresting or thumb-thugging folks on Twitter. Instead, it's a life of doing the best you can and knowing that it's not enough but still trying your best every day. It's a life where the keys to God's kingdom are found in humility, knowing that you'll probably get it wrong just as much as you'll get it right, and yet committing yourself to pave the way for justice by making peace wherever you go, even if it seems like it's not making a difference. This past week, our Church Without Walls audit task force met. Uh, I've talked about this task force from time to time. It's a team of UVCers from across all of our sites who are dedicated to um, audit, spending some time to audit our practices of anti-racism, asking who are we really? How are we living out our commitments really? And each person on the task force is passionate about helping us bridge the gap between who we are and who we would hope to be. But the church is the people, and so that means that they too, this team of folks, are finding themselves challenged by a few things. How are these good-hearted white folks still, in spite of their best efforts, playing into internal racist superiority? And how are these strong-minded people of color playing into their internal racist oppression, even on the team? How are we doing this generations-long dance steps that have kept folks in their story loops of domination and oppression? And how will we, in spite of ourselves, commit to doing things differently? We spent some time caucusing, meeting in our affiliate groups um, to talk about some of the dynamics we saw getting played out as we did our work together. So we're doing self-examination as we're doing external examination, right? And one person uh, in, in our People of Color group talked about how, as an Asian American, she enjoys a level of invisibility, um, never really kind of being the brunt of anything, but also never really being included either. Um, and so she never really felt confident enough to speak up, and so she would just kind of choose to go along to get along. And another person expressed concern about how can she raise frustrations without becoming the angry black woman. We called ourselves out on wanting to make folks, white folks feel better before they felt the pain of their part in the situation. Together, we articulated and talked through our patterns of behavior, our dance steps, and slowly but surely began to plan a new way to move. We strategized a way to break the pattern so that no one person would bear the tensions to share the load of speaking the truth in love. And when we came back together and reported out, we heard our white brothers and sisters admit feelings of defensiveness or a desire to be seen as the good white one, right? 
Um, they committed themselves to delving deeper in understanding the dynamics of white fragility, what it is that kind of welled up within them when they started to feel uncomfortable or defensive when the conversation got into areas that they felt sort of a lightning rod feeling. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. No one left this mealing, meeting sorry, feeling especially victorious. No, there were no Instagram-worthy hashtag no-filter photos that were taken, but I'll tell you what, we caught a glimpse of the kingdom, and we felt comforted as we mourned our legacy of brokenness, as well as our participation in it. We felt a little bit more ownership of the world we live in and left that meeting a little less starved for righteousness. We inject just a little bit closer to what the good life on God's terms looked like. It didn't feel good exactly, but it didn't feel that bad either. A good life for believers, according to Micah 8, is to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. It's not very sexy, but there's a place for you in it. Your worth is not what your mom wanted or what your dad hoped. It's not necessarily what I'm telling you or your friends are pressuring you toward. It's not, it's born of your anxieties or those voices in your head telling you that you're not enough, you'll never be enough, and so why even try to begin with? Your value isn't determined by your GDP or your DNA. It doesn't even matter if you're down with OPP, right? The good life is shaped first and foremost by God's deep love and imagination, a deep love for you, an imagining of what this world is created for. It's achieved by entering that love, how painful it might be, accessing that imagination as challenging as it may be, and bridging the gap between how things are and how things could be. This bridge work, this is what the Beatitudes are oriented toward. For Jesus, it was about resistance. Resistance to common definitions that preserve our egos and let us off the hook. Resistance to cheap comfort and divided hearts. We could have left that meeting of the audit task force smiling and shaking hands and kind of thinking our things about each other. But instead, we decided to dig into it and work through it and do that hard work of staying at the table. Resistance to systems that cultivate apathy and disengagement, structures that keep us ignorant and busy, 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 all the time busy. What does this resistance look like for us as individuals and as a community that claim to follow Jesus, that are trying to do this? Well, it might look like truth-telling, calling things out when they, what, for what they are in truth, and love, and with an unflinching courage, because it does take courage sometimes. Choosing authentic and messy community over the isolated protection of a well-curated image or people who are just like me. Resistance could look like dealing with your stuff with courage and with humility. Or it could even look like staying committed, even when it's really hard, and it might cost you everything, like being reviled or persecuted. The good life lived on God's terms does not promise to be an easy life. I have to admit this passage makes me, me feel a little bit nervous because of what it demands. But it also comforts me because I get a lot of people who say nice things to me, but I also get folk who are really, really hurtful. People who make me feel foolish for having tried to connect in deeper ways. People who make me feel like an idiot for being vulnerable. And these experiences sometimes make me sad and a little defeated. 
And I just, I see just how much hurt and fear and anxiety that people are bound by and acting from. How do we remind ourselves of that bigger vision Jesus casts in Matthew 5? How do we find the good life in such circumstances? Where is the good life in those moments when resistance does feel futile? When you yourself become your own problem, even. I think it must be in the cracks and the crevices between the broken cookies that are frosted and stitched together by sprinkles, in admitting the ways that you're participating in pain and choosing to rise up in spite of it, to stay and work through it when it would be much easier to walk away. Maybe we find it at a table with friends where you bless bread and you break it and you pour out wine knowing that tomorrow it will be your body that's broken and your blood that's poured out. If the Beatitudes tell us anything, it's that the good life isn't entirely what we would like it to be. But it is good. And it is enough. And it's good enough. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this life, this good life, this enough life that you have given to us to live and to lead from. Help us, in spite of ourselves and maybe even in spite of one another, to rise to the occasions that you present to us, to dig in with courage and humility, with meekness, and with maybe even some grief, always trusting, always believing that somehow in our efforts that are sometimes good enough and sometimes not that good enough, that you are doing something, that you are building that bridge between how things are and how things ought to be. Help us to live the good enough life knowing that the gaps of where we are will be filled in by you and by one another. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.